Well, it is a privilege to uh, have this opportunity to preach tonight. Uh, normally, uh, my wife and I are uh, sitting in with the kids on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. I, I do have the ability to uh, teach every week, but it is a treat to be able to preach in big church, as we normally call it. So, and it is also a, a double blessing to be able to do so during our annual missions emphasis month. So I'm not a, I'm not a missionary per se, but considering that we work with the children, it's almost like working in a foreign field. Uh, they do have their own customs. They ha- sometimes they have their own language, and so. But I am grateful for the opportunity, and for those who are uh, joining us through our podcast, uh, thank you for listening in. For those of us joining on our uh, live stream on Facebook, hi mom, hey dad. Um, I'm grateful for that because, believe it or not, my folks, uh, they don't live here in town. So with the live stream, this is actually going to be the first time that they actually get to see me preach. So I'm very grateful for that opportunity. And of course, although uh, he is not present here, I do want to extend a thank you to Pastor Tolbert for giving me this chance. And I encourage you to continue to pray for him and Miss Shirley as they are down in Alabama, getting some much-deserved rest and relaxation. So as we begin the sermon... I would like, as is my usual custom being able to be up here, uh, begin by getting the congregation more engaged by asking some trivia-style questions to see how well you folks actually know the missions ministry here at the church. Now, I do not have any prizes uh, to give to anyone who answered the question correctly, so you'll just have bragging rights because, you know, as Christians, we know how to brag humbly because that is one of the things that we learn. So, are you guys ready? All right, question number one. So, for those, of us, for those people who are listening in through our podcast and our videos, you will notice in our sanctuary that we have flags hanging around the outer walls of our sanctuary. Each of those flags represents at least one missionary that our church supports. The question for you folks is, how many flags do we have hanging in our sanctuary? I'll give you a couple seconds to take a look. Time's up. Does anyone know? Brother Jesse? 38 flags. That's good. You have a good, you have a quick eye. That's good. Now, technically though, technically this is a confession. Technically, I think we should actually have 39 flags because I'm looking and we do not have a flag for the Dominican Republic, which is actually rather ironic considering that we're their sending church. So if Josh and T are listening in, I do apologize, but on the plus side, we do have one of their banners on display in the foyer, so we kind of, I guess that kind of evens out. But then again, we are out of room where we've been hanging our flags, so it looks like we're either going to be hanging them higher up on the wall, or I'm going to recommend that we actually start hanging our flags on the ceiling. I think that'd be a really nice feature you know, start doing that, so. Um, <laughs> that is a good suggestion, Brother Dennis, but me and Ladders, they, well, we don't always see eye to eye. So uh, I'll, let, I'll leave that to uh, Brother John. I think he's the one who's been doing this anyway, or he can give it off to Brother Bill. So anyway, so that's our first question. So good job, Brother Jesse. So question two. This is going to be a little bit harder because now we're going to be outside of the sanctuary and actually in the hallways because if you walk in our church, you will notice that on the outer walls of our sanctuary, we actually have letters that we receive from our missionaries. And I encourage you, when you have the opportunity, either before service or after service, you take a moment to read a letter or two, see how our missionaries are doing. And with those letters, we have corresponding pictures of our missionaries. 
How many missionaries do we support here at Hillside? How many missionaries do we support here at Hillside? Asa? 87. 87. Awesome. That was one of our kids there. 87. 87 missionaries. That is wonderful. Considering that 47 years ago we started supporting three or four, and now we're up to 87, it won't be too long now before we'll be able to reach 100. So that is a tremendous blessing. Question number three. So now we're going to move away from our church missions and actually get into the scriptures with this question, okay? So we often, when we talk about missions, we often associate that with what we call the Great Commission. Uh, Jesus telling the church and his disciples to go and to preach the good news of his death, burial, and resurrection to the world. So the Great Commission is often considered the foundational verse for missions outreach. How many times is this instruction recorded in the Bible? How many times is this actually recorded? Because I know there, for many of us, we probably know at least one of them, but how many times is it actually recorded? Erica? Not ten. Now, I guess I should clarify, this is the time where Jesus himself is giving the instructions. Because there's another question about missions, and we're going to talk about that. Devin? Get, getting close. Getting close. Asa again? Three. Not three. Anyone? Any takers? How about on this side? You guys have been quiet. Any takers? If I'm not mistaken, and for the Bible scholars, I, oh, I see Miss Anna. You're close. Josiah, you're close. All right, I see one hand in the back. This will be our last one. Seth? Five. Now, for our Bible scholars, you may want to correct me uh, after services. If I'm misleading people, I do apologize, but I do believe that the Great Commission is recorded five times in the Bible. There is probably the most well-known one, Matthew 28, 18-20. There is Mark 16, 15. And I'm just going to give you the addresses here, so if you want, you can mark it in your Bibles and check them out later. There is Luke 24, verses 45 to 53. There is John, chapter 17. This is actually the prayer of Jesus in the garden, but he mentions it. John 17, 18 through 21. And then probably the other more well-known commission is Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. So there's five times. Five times. And uh, I guess kind of going to a biblical customs, we often hear that when a rabbi or a teacher repeats himself, usually twice, you know the importance of that lesson. So how important is it that the Great Commission is mentioned five times in the Bible? All right, last question, question four. How often is the idea of missions mentioned in the Bible? How often is the idea of missions mentioned in the Bible? Let's just ballpark it. You can do like a nice round number. Oh, Liliana. Could, could be. Any others? No one else is brave enough? Josiah? Uh, 17. 17? A little bit higher, a little bit higher. Anna? Not just one, but that was a good, hey, at least she's guessing, so that's good. <laughs> Devin? 18. A little bit more. I'm appreciative, by the way, that our kids are the ones answering the question. Adults, you need to step up your game. These kids are not shy. Uh, last one, Erica. A little bit higher than that. Missions, actually, I actually learned this in my first year in college in one of my missions courses. Missions is in all 66 books of the Bible. 
One of, our, one of our lessons that we had, one of our assignments, was we had to find at least one missions verse in each book of the Bible. And you know what? They're there. Every book of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, talks about missions. Our God, the God we serve, is a missions-minded God. And I'm hoping that this evening's lesson will demonstrate that concept. The account that we're going to be talking about in Scripture will be a familiar one to many of us. But for tonight and for our theme we will be focusing on the underlying advocacy towards missions that is found within the passage. So this story is the one in which Jesus healed a man that was demon-possessed. And it is actually found in three of the four Gospels. Okay? Uh, we're, for tonight, we're going to be focusing primarily on Luke's account. So Luke chapter number 8. Luke chapter number 8. The other passages that I will make occasional um, reference to is also Matthew chapter 8 and in Mark chapter number 5. But we're going to be in Luke chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, I hear pages turning already. If you didn't bring a Bible tonight, I'm going to encourage you. We should have a black uh, Bible in the pew in front of you. If you want, you can grab that. And it's actually going to be on page number 758. I actually looked it up for you folks, so you don't have to worry about finding the address. So 758. So Luke chapter number 8. And uh, I'm going to read the story in its entirety, beginning in verse number 26. But our main verses of interest are actually going to be verses 38 and 39. Luke chapter number 8, beginning in verse number 26. And the Bible says, And they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. And when he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man, which had devils long time, and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for oftentimes it had caught him. And he was kept bound with chains and in fetters, and he broke the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. And there was there an herd of many swine feeding on the mountain, and they besought him that he would suffer them to enter into them. And he suffered them. Then went the devils out of the man and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the lake and were choked. When they that fed them saw what was done, they fled and went and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what was done and came to Jesus and found the man out of whom the devils were departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They also which saw it told them, told them by what means he that was possessed of the devils was healed. Then the whole multitude of the country of the Gadarenes round about besought him to depart from them, for they were taken with great fear, and he went back into the ship and returned back again. Now the man out of whom the devils were departed besought him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to thine own house and show how great things God hath done unto thee. And he went his way and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done. Unto him. So what can we learn about missions from this passage? The first point that we can learn, we learn about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We learn about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Jesus is, or at least he should be, 
at the heart of missions, just as he is the foundation of our faith. Jesus Christ is the mission. He is the Great Commission. Uh, the term Christ and Messiah, we often hear that term almost interchangeably because they mean the same thing. Messiah originates from the Hebrew, Christ originates from the Greek, but they both mean the Anointed One. This is the title that was given to Jesus because he is the person who was prophesied all the way back to the beginning from Genesis chapter 3 to be the one bringing salvation to the world. And he should be at the heart of our mission. In fact, the most famous verse in, in the Bible exemplifies Christ's mission here on earth. What is the most famous verse in the Bible? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And continue on to verse 17. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And so when Christ is seen in our passage, he is pursuing his mission with purpose and with intention. You know, the stories that we read in the Bible of the miracles of Jesus, they were not there just to show Jesus' power over death, over sickness, over demons, although that they certainly demonstrate that. But they were showing his mission to save people. And in fact, when we see Jesus... Uh, going backwards to verse number 22 of the same passage, we find out that it was Jesus' idea to actually go and cross the Sea of Galilee. In verses 22 to 25 is the occasion where Jesus calms the storm. But it was Jesus who had the idea to actually go into the Sea of Galilee and to cross to the other side. My guess is because he knew that there was a man there in need of salvation. And so he went with the idea of seeking those who are lost. He had that mission in mind everywhere that he went. And when Jesus ascended to heaven after his death and resurrection, he gave instructions for his followers, the church, to carry on the mission, proclaiming his salvation so that others might be saved. That is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ so that others might be saved. In fact, uh, the Apostle Peter in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 9, tells us that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering to us for not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is hoping that the whole world will come to him. Will everyone do it? Unfortunately not, because that's their choice. But it is God's desire. It is Christ's desire. It is the mission's desire for that to happen. And so we see that here in this passage. Not only do we see Jesus Christ, the Messiah, in this passage of missions, but we also are able to learn about the man-turned-missionary. The man-turned-missionary. And Luke, going back to verse 38, Now the man out of whom the devils were departed besought him that he might be with him. And we'll just stop there for a moment. The man that we see in verse number 38 is not the same one we met in verse 27, but he is a man transformed. Amen. He is a man transformed. Second right. Corinthians chapter number 5 and verse number 17. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 17. Let me read that to you. It says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. This is a new man. And also, Ephesians chapter number 2, another letter of the Apostle Paul, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read this in its entirety. 
And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we have all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. I think that describes this man pretty well. Verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. The man we see before, from verses 20, 27, all the way to the end, the man before was possessed. He was living among the dead in the tombs, and he was controlled by the legion of demons. A legion, by the way, a little fun fact, was the largest unit of the Roman army, consisting of approximately 6,000 soldiers. 6,000 soldiers. Now, I know some scholars like to, like to make claim that the biblical uh, authors only use that word legion to describe that there were many demons in him. But, you know, we interpret the Bible literally, and if the Bible says legion, I think we should take it as a literal legion of demons. Not only because it is the inspired word of God, but also so that we do not run the risk of underestimating the power of the devil. I mean, it's a pretty dangerous thing when that happens. So to put that, that number, that legion, into a uh, familiar perspective, um, imagine... That would be like taking the current population of the city of Willard, Missouri, which is, I believe, a roughly about 5,500 people, and putting them into a single individual. That is a lot. And if I'm not mistaken, you can correct me if I'm wrong in this, but demons are similar to people in that they are unique individuals. They have personalities. So it's not like it's the 6,000 of the same type of person. It is 6,000 individuals running through your mind, fighting for control and trying to do different things. It's any wonder that this man could not be chained, could not be, you know, bound, that he was going through the tombs, not a cemetery, mind you. In the Middle Eastern customs, you know, they dig out graves in like the caves and in the, and in the rock face and actually are caverns. You know, he's going through howling, crying. And Mark, Mark's account, chapter 5, says he even cut himself with stones trying to end his life. This man was a mess. Now, when I was studying this passage, I will say that a thought did go through my mind and made me wonder, what did this man get into that would have caused 6,000 demons to possess him? But almost as immediately, as soon as that thought came to my mind, another thought smacked me right upside the head and said, Corey, that's none of your business. If the Bible, if God wanted us to know what this man did, he would have put it in the scriptures. But then again, is not about how we get into sin, it's about how we get out of sin. Because, you know, the Bible and our God puts us on all on level playing field. As the scriptures say in Romans, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. 
For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Wherefore, as by one man's sin enter into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Amen. And you know, there are a million different ways that a person can get into sin, but praise the Lord, there is one way that we can get out, and that is God. And that is the point of this passage, and that is the point of missions. Our, foreign, our missionaries that go around the world, they're going to meet different individuals with problems, with issues, with sin in their lives. But thankfully, they all have the same message for them. And that is Christ brings hope. And so now we see the man has been made alive through the saving power of Christ. And more importantly, he wants to serve Christ, which is actually in contrast to the second man that's only mentioned in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 8 that there's actually two men who are possessed. Now, some people like to say there's a contradiction, but in Matthew's account, if I may, if I may explain a little bit, Matthew's audience was primarily Hebrew, and when a miracle or when something happened, they normally require two or three witnesses. And so he gives the full account of two men being saved. But for Mark and Luke, they focus on the one who actually wanted to serve the Lord afterwards. This second man who got saved, he basically just said, thanks, Jesus, and went on his way. I think uh, Pastor Tolbert had a sermon about that last week, about the uh, three members of the New Testament Baptist Church. You know, there's some members who pretend to be saved, there are some members who are just content in being saved, and then there's a the third who actually want to serve the Savior. This man here is that third member. He wants to serve the Lord. He wants to go with Jesus back into the boat. And, you know, it doesn't say he wants to be a disciple. It doesn't say he wanted to learn from Jesus. He, he looks like he was willing to be, to be a servant, like, God or Lord, I'm going to spit shine your shoes if I need to. I will wash the dishes. I will clean the clothes. I will do everything you need me to do. Just let me be with you. But instead of making this man a disciple who follows and learns, Christ made him a missionary to go and to tell, which actually leads to the third point that we see. The third thing we learn about missions is the message of testimony, the message of testimony. And so back in verse number 38, now the man out of whom the devils were departed besought him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to thine own house, and show how great things God hath done unto thee. And he went his way, and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done unto him. The message that Jesus gave to the man to share was simply his salvation story, or what we often call in the church, his testimony. His testimony. A person's testimony, coupled with the truth of Scripture, can often reach hearts that the church as an institution or as an organization cannot. And, you know, it's amazing, you know, you hear different stories of people witnessing to others and how they are actually able to come to a saving knowledge or saving faith in Christ on everyday streets, right there on Main Street or in their homes. And so it's very encouraging. I actually want to give a personal example of this, and that is my mom. My mom is a good example of sharing your testimony with others. So uh, some of you know this part of, my, part of my life, a little bit of my own testimony. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was four years old. Uh, my mom was an alcoholic and a drug addict for most of my childhood, and she was frequently in prison. She was in and out of jail constantly. But at some point in her life, she heard a clear presentation of the gospel, and she did get saved. And so I think for the past, for over 15 years, she has been sober and drug-free. And so she actually uh, lives at a rehab center up in Warsaw, Missouri, uh, not for drugs or anything. She actually had to have her leg amputated after contracting a staph infection, so she's up there. 
but she is such a blessing to the other residents and to the staff at that rehab center. In fact, every time we have opportunity to go up and see her, everyone comes around and says, oh, you're, you're Trisha's mom? Oh, she's such a blessing. She's such a ray of sunshine. And it's wonderful. It's encouraging to hear that. And she actually, as a, uh, as a, as a hobby, and more actually like a passion, she actually writes poetry. She likes to write poems for the people in the rehab center. She actually writes birthday cards and other things. And she puts her testimony, she puts her, her faith into each one. And actually, I want to share with you one of those poems. It's, it's kind of a lengthy one, so bear with me, but I hope that you will enjoy it. It's titled, I've Got a Mansion. I am happy with what I've done down here, but let's make something very clear. I am looking forward to the streets of gold. I know it won't be long because I am growing old. I'll have a mansion way up high. I'll be with the stars up in the sky. I'll see Jesus who died for me. For my sins, he set me free. On that cross, that's where he died. I'll see the nail prints and his side. In heaven, that's where I will stay. I'll be happy every day. I am getting old, this may be true. But what will be great, I'll be with you. Something else that will be so neat, we won't have to worry about clothes or something to eat. We will be busy doing other things, this I know, but there will be other souls everywhere we go. No more wars or bloodshed will be seen, no more people that are selfish and mean. It will be such a blessing, yes it will, then my body God will heal. The greatest thing of all is I am ready when Jesus does call. And, you know, obviously you do not have to be a master of poetry or master of literature in order to share your testimony with others. You just have to have a willingness to talk with them. A willingness to say, this is what the Lord has done for me. And you will be amazed at the impact that it will have. You will be amazed at the impact that it will have. In fact, in Mark, in Mark's account, it says that when he went out and he published and he started sharing, his, the man started sharing his testimony, it said that the people did marvel. They're saying, is this the man who was possessed? Was this the man who was, who was in the tombs? Was this the man who was crying out and cutting himself? No, this was a new man. And this is what Christ did for him. And that's what Christ can do for all of us. So we learn about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We learn about the man turned missionary. We learn about our message of testimony. And last, our last point is that we learn we learn about the mission field. We learn about the mission field itself. Now we're going to go up to our uh, beginning verse, verse number 26 of Luke 8. And they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. The country of the Gadarenes was located on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it was mostly inhabited by Gentiles. There was a region also known as Decapolis. It was a Roman settlement. Gentiles. So for Jesus and the disciples, this was a foreign field. This was a foreign, this was a foreign mission field. But for the man who was transformed, this was his home. This was his home. Jesus Christ sent the man back to his home to be a missionary. Biblical missions begins at home, the place where we live and work. In fact, one of the great commissions, Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8, says, And ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and of the uttermost parts of the earth. I remember a few years ago, our theme for our Missions Emphasis Month was this actual verse. And, you know, each week, I believe Pastor gave 
a different verse describing these regions that we were to go to. And it starts in Jerusalem. It starts where we live. And then it goes to our state. It goes to our country. And then it goes to the rest of the world. But missions has to start where we live. It has to start where we live. In fact, many of our missionaries that we support are, see, are serving in their home countries. The, the first missionary that came to my mind, in fact, he's going to be able to be here in a couple weeks, is Brother Jacob and Miss Rachel Adesina to Nigeria, that green and white flag on that back wall. They got saved. They actually traveled here to the States to go to Bible college, and as soon as they were done, they went back home. And they've been, they've, they've been there ever since. Uh, Bethany and I had the pleasure of getting to know them two years ago. Uh, Pastor Tolbert asked us to help them uh, move. They were staying at uh, Ms. Sherry Baskin's house for a time, and then they got an apartment at the, at the Bible College. So we actually got one of the church vans, and we got to transport them over there. And it was such a blessing to get to know them. And even before they left, they uh, had to go around town to different banks in Springfield to deposit some of their love offerings. So we got to drive them around, and we got to know them. And they are such a loving couple. So I encourage you, when they're here, get to know them. Such a wonderful influence. And I know that we have several others. I'll give one more example. Uh, I know we had um, the Flores family to Russia. Their letter read today, but we have another family to Russia, Vladimir and Debbie Lukianov. Same thing, Brother Vlad, or as we affectionately call him, Brother Bob. He is from Russia. I actually had him as my first grade Sunday school teacher when him and Debbie were going to college. Not much has changed. In fact, I think, actually, no, some things have changed. He's gotten shorter. But anyway, <laughs> but I know, I believe that they're, they're back in the States on furlough, and I hope, I hope, Brother Vlad, that you'll be coming here before too long. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> but it's such a blessing that they, he had a passion for Russia, and he wanted to go back. And, you know, he found, you know, him and Debbie met here while they were in school, and she had a willingness to go with him and to serve. And I know we also have several other missionaries who, who went back home, but I also know that, several, that many of them are also in restricted access nations, so I don't want to give off their names here, but I encourage you to look up their letters, and you're able to see which ones actually went back home. And further still, it is often the joy of the missionary, even if they go to a foreign field, to train local people to do the work of the ministry and to reach their families and their neighbors. I mean, that's one of the tasks of many of our missionaries is that they convert people. You know, they preach the gospel to them. They get saved. They disciple them. They train them in the ministry. Hopefully they get to go to Bible college. And then they start backing off so that the people that they have been serving will take up the leadership for them so that they become the missionaries. And that is such an encouragement to do. But unfortunately... It seems like our home field is starting to become the most neglected. I'll give an example. So where Bethany and I live, we live off of uh, Nickel Street in town. And we have a Timothy puppy, cutest puppy in the world, by the way. But normally, at least once a week, I like to take her for an extended walk down Nichols. So where we are, where our street is, at Nichols, and we take to Kansas Expressway. If you went to VBS this year, where Nickel Park did, we live right down the road from them. So where our street is to Kansas Expressway is about one and a half miles. So we walk back and forth. But in that one and a half mile stretch of road, straight stretch of road, here in Springfield, Missouri, 
there are five churches. Five churches on that one and a half mile stretch of road, three of which are Baptist, three of which are different Baptist. We have a Southern Baptist, a Free Will Baptist, and an Independent Baptist. I'm amazed at how many Baptists there are, but they have nothing to do with one another. But we've been in that house for the past year and a half, and in that year and a half, I do not believe a single one of those churches has ever and invited us to church. Not a single one of them. And sometimes, uh, our dog, London, uh, take, gets a little adventuring. We go off some of the side roads, some of the side neighborhoods. You know, not very far from home. And so we normally just stay in like a little rectangle block of it, you know, a mile and a half long by probably three quarters of a mile wide. So imagine that kind of a block in Springfield. In that one section of Springfield, I, I kid you not, I have come across at least a dozen churches in that one small section of town. I cannot imagine how many churches there actually are in Springfield, but how many of them are actually striving to reach the communities? How many of them are actually trying to reach the people who are their neighbors for the cause of Christ? It's, it's sad. It is sad. And I'm also afraid to say that, you know, we have some work to do here at Hillside also. We have some work to do here at, here at Hillside also. Um, I know that Brother John uh, has been working hard to uh, revamp our visitation program. Miss uh, Jennifer has been working hard to help him do it. And I'm sure there's several other people who have been assisting, but we have work to do in order to ensure that we get the message across to our friends and our neighbors. And, you know, our church really, although we are kind of out in the boonies, you know, we're out of city limits, we are actually blessed and having the advantage of being able to reach numerous communities around us. In fact, I think we're almost equidistant to about six different towns in our area, not just Springfield, but we got Halltown, we got Republic, we got Wilder, we got Ashgrove, we got Bodark, we got, we got Brookline, we got different areas that we can reach, but the question is, are we doing it? Now, now forgive my crudeness for my next statement. I, I believe it needs to be said, so if you, if you have any offense against it, come to me and I'll apologize. Our church, I think our church is suffering from a B-U-T, butt problem. We are suffering from a butt problem. Allow me to elaborate. Oh, I wish I could help, but. Well, I know the ministry is important, but. Well, I agree we could do more, but. We're so quick to give excuses. We're so quick to find ways in how we can't serve when really we should be finding ways in how we can serve. And again, the 417 outreach, the way that Brother John has demonstrated it, there really is not any excuse that we could give that why we can't serve unless the only reason you have for not getting involved is simply you don't want to. And may I, may I be so bold to say that's not a good reason. Um, we're not, I'm not going to turn to this for the sake of time, but uh, I was reminded of Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 13. Uh, there's a talking about, you know, we're not to judge one another, but remember this, that we are held accountable by the supreme judge. At some point, at the end of our lives, we all will give account to God for the actions that we do, and that we need to be careful not to give a stumbling block or become a stumbling block or a hindrance to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I, I refer to this passage to say this. 
the more that we attempt to excuse ourselves from the work of the ministry, then the more that our pastors and our deacons and our church leaders have to pick up the slack. And when that happens, we run the risk of, be, of making the ministry become a burden, not just to them, but to their families also. And then we also, in turn, eventually may become a danger of becoming a stumbling block to the people who have been called to minister to us. We have to be careful not doing that. There is ways in which we can serve and which we can reach out to the communities around us. We are not to make excuses. It is up to the whole body of Christ fitly joined together to, to fulfill the task of missions, especially the ones here in our Jerusalem. And if I may be so bold to say, when we do give an account to our Father, when we do stand before the Bema Seat, the judgment seat of Christ as believers, there's not going to be a good enough reason when we, when we had to answer the question, why did you not serve me more? Be careful of that. We need to be mindful of that. So as we close, I would like to make one last observation from our passage in Luke. This isn't a point, but this is just an observation. All right. So if you skim through those verses real quick, verses 26 through 39, you will notice that the disciples are not mentioned in the story. They're not. They're in the boat with Christ, as you can see in verses 22 through 25, and they join him when he is called to heal Jairus' daughter in verses 40 through 56. The same is true when you read Mark's account in Mark chapter 5 and in Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 8. They are present before and after this story, but you don't, but they're not mentioned during. Where do they go? My guess is they were hiding in the boat, but we don't know that. The point of it being is the disciples were there, but Christ chose to use a layperson instead of one he had called to the ministry. He had chosen the disciples. He said, follow me. And they followed him, and they were called to the ministry. They were called to preach. They were called to evangelize. They were called to missions. This man was not. The man who was healed, he was considered a layperson of the church. But yet Christ chose him to be the missionary to his own field. The Lord wants to use every believer to present his gospel. It is up to every single one of us. So Hillside Baptist Church, I encourage you, let us go forward together as missionaries so that we can reach the field that we call home.